You know what? Great speeches stand the test of time, don't they? They offer wisdom and they speak into a time then, but also in the future. Our souls are stirred. Long after even though when those people have died, the words live on. My favourite, I'd have to be, because I'm a proud Brit, is Winston Churchill. I love that one. Um, but as good as those speeches are, and they're surely some of the best that you thought of, there is one speech that not only is better, not only does it supersede these speeches, but it almost renders them insignificant because of the life-transforming, world-transforming impact that this one speech, the greatest speech ever given and the speech I'm talking about is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, early on in his ministry, spoke this sermon. And it was probably over a few days because there's a lot of content. But it was on, the sermon, it was on um, a mount, a mountain, a hill. And it's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in this sermon, Jesus details what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus. And he emphasised that his true followers are to be entirely different from those who do not know Jesus. Christians, Christ followers, are not to take their cue from society, but they are to take it from Jesus. You see... As Christians, we are countercultural. We are countercultural. And what is a counterculture? Well, a counterculture is where the values of society that aren't Christian are the opposite of the values that we hold dear as Christians. Now, it is possible in any setting to be countercultural. Purely for the sake of it. And we've all known that person, and he's always a guy who, in the middle of winter, when we're all wearing scarves, hats, and coat, he walks around in sandals and flip-flops. I've never seen a woman do it, but it's always some crazy guy who seems to be countercultural, but for no particular reason, it appears. Now, the church is not supposed to be countercultural like that. You see, what we do is, as Christians, we don't look at society and then say, we'll do the opposite. No, what we do is we start with Jesus. We start with Jesus and we look at what Jesus says and that is how we decide how we live. He models it. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you this question at the end of this message because I know it's a significant question that at this stage probably might just go over your head. I want to ask you, do you want to be a countercultural Christian? Let me say that again so it sinks in. Do you want to be a countercultural Christian? Because I must warn you, if you are a countercultural Christian, it will cost you. You see, you'll face opposition. You'll face resentment from other people. 
There'll be opportunities that you can't take because you know they go against your beliefs. But if you're willing to put Jesus as number one, the time, the energy, the hardships you face will pale into insignificance compared to what God wants to bless you with, what he wants to lavish upon you, not only here on the earth, but much more so in eternity. And so as we've been talking about let God's glory fall, I'm going to pray now that God's glory falls as we start to explore the greatest speech, the greatest sermon ever given. So if you just close your eyes and join me. Father God, would your glory fall in this place? Would your glory fall in this place? So that as we learn from this incredible message you gave, would it go much deeper than our minds? Would it go deep into our hearts? Would you teach us? Would you prompt us to be countercultural Christians, I pray? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm so excited that I get to start off an eight-part series um, called Counterculture. Counterculture. And this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the scene for this series of teaching. And whilst it's eight sessions, it's not going to be eight straight weeks because we've got some visiting speakers, we've got some um, special services. But what we're going to be looking at in those eight weeks is the Beatitudes, And the Beatitudes is how Jesus started his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, between verses 3 and 12. And he shares the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes consist of eight ways that we are to be blessed. Eight ways that are countercultural to society that God wants to bless us. Now, the word bless, The truth is, is our society has watered that down, hasn't you? You sneeze, bless you. Um, You see a cute baby, oh, bless. You know, it's, it's a word that we're familiar with in society, let alone the church. Because we all know the word blessing is possibly one of the most used words in Christian circles. Now, I'm not saying don't use that word, but it's just to stop and just pull back a little bit and realize, okay, let's really look at what blessing is. It's not an alternative to say gesundheit. It means so much more. And so what blessed means, it means more than happiness. It implies the fortunate or you're in an enviable enviable state to others who do not know Jesus. You see, as Christians, we are part of God's kingdom. And that is where we are blessed, where we are fortunate. And being part of God's kingdom, what does the kingdom of God mean? There's a whole series there, but effectively what it means is we have submitted our lives to God's authority. 
we've invited him in to rule our hearts and our lives. And the Beatitudes, let me, let me share, it, what it does is it shows a, a deeper joy that goes way beyond the, the surface level of happiness. But what the Beatitudes don't offer is they don't promise laughter or pleasure or earthly prosperity. No, being blessed by God is so much better than those surface things. Like, I'm saying I love to laugh. It's great to, to do pleasurable things. And it's great to have financial prosperity. But God's blessing is so, so much deeper than those. Being blessed by God means that we experience hope and joy independent of our outward circumstances. Who knows? You can say, you know, are you happy? Well, you think, How am I, what are my emotions? That determines whether I'm happy or not. But when we say, are you full of joy or hope? You can go through the worst things, but still say, yes, I'm not happy, but I'm full of joy and hope. Because we're looking to God going deeper of the blessed um, gifts that he wants to give us rather than the surface level of happiness. So the important thing we need to understand about these blessings is that they're countercultural. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about that countercultural element, but particularly the Beatitudes, these are eight phrases, sayings, promises, truths that don't make sense without having committed your life to Jesus. They just do not make sense. And um, what I want to do today is I'm going to share the first beatitude and we'll be looking at the next seven as the the weeks go on. But I want to kind of give you an aid to your understanding. Now, does anyone else here like the board game Risk? Has anyone played Risk before? Now, this isn't the real Risk. This is a Marvel version. Uh, I like the old school one. But like Monopoly, Risk seems to have gone in a whole host of different avenues of different branding. But Risk is an incredible board game. And what I want to do is tell you, first of all, for those of you who have not played Risk, what the game objective is. There's this inferior version of Marvel downstairs, that might be more contemporary, but plenty of people will have the original Risk game so you can play it. But here's what the objective on the box says. The object of the game is, is, is players aim to conquer their enemies' territories by building an army, moving their troops in and engaging in battle. This exciting game is filled with betrayal, alliances and surprise attacks. On the battlefield, anything goes. You win the game once you've conquered the world. Now, I really get into this game. The bloodthirsty tyrant in me comes out, which is probably not a phrase you'd expect to hear from your pastor. But I don't play Risk anymore because there was such aggression that would come out where I'd want to win. And I'd want a defeat. And so I will never play risk with any of you in the congregation because you might leave the church. You might think this guy is not loving. I am, but risk is dangerous for me. (laughs) 
So I was playing a game of Risk about 20 years ago with four friends. And um, we, we set it up and, and we started. And like any, any game, you can sometimes start well or you can start badly. And I started and I didn't have good cards. I didn't have a good prospect for winning. But as the game went on and other players kind of dealt their cards and rolled their dice, I started to think, hold on, I can see a long game where I can potentially get in there and be victorious. And so this goes on, but there was one of my friends, Kim, who was still comfortably in charge of the game. But she started to make some peculiar decisions that were bad strategy. And all of a sudden, I really started to see the game like a chess play where you can see 20 moves ahead was, this game's mine. And so I'm getting excited. I'm seeing that, yes, I'm going to take that continent and that continent, and that's how I can pull it all together. And then Kim, in the middle of the game, says, okay, I'm done. I said, what? What? What do you mean you're done? This isn't a game where you can just cash your chips in and leave and everyone carries on. If you leave, the game's over for everyone and I'm going to win. And she said, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I said, Kim, we've invested an hour and a half into this game so far. You need a reason why you are pulling out. And this is what Kim said. She said, well, I had a different agenda. My aim was to make sure that the five players playing would all kind of be in a similar position with all about the same number of countries so that it was equal and fair. That was my objective. I went berserk. (laughs) This is not a game about, you know, fair play. This is about fighting to the death. Now, Kim was playing the same game. She was playing by the same rules, but she was playing with a different objective, a different endgame. I was fighting for world domination. She was fighting for world peace. So... I did not enjoy that game. And she ended, and it was over. Um, And, you know, it's like that for us as Christians. You see, we are to be in the world like Kim was in the game. But Kim was in the game, but not of the game. And so, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be in the world and play by the the game, the rules of society, but we're not to be pursuing the things that the world wants. We're to be pursuing what God wants for us. And that is where we're playing the same game, but with a different objective. So the eight Beatitudes are to be lived counterculturally. And this week's Beatitude uh, from Matthew 5, 3, because you heard it at the beginning as we went through them on the, the, the video, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And why does being poor in spirit result in the kingdom of heaven? 
Why is being poor in spirit something God wants us to be? Why would God want us to be poor in anything when we think about it? See, Jesus isn't referring to financial poverty here, although he does mention that later on in the Gospels. No, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking of being spiritually poor. So what does it mean to be spiritually poor? Now, I'm going to be honest with you for the next few minutes. Is I really, really struggled with this. I really struggled with it. You see, if I'm honest... I didn't know where to go with it. First of all, I'm going to unpack it. The language of poor in spirit in kingdom of heaven, it all kind of gets, you know, a bit Christianese. But I didn't understand with my heart. Kind of understood with my head, but not my heart. And so what I did as a good theological graduate and pastor is I picked up the commentaries and I started to read the commentaries and see what John Stott said and other people. And what did it do? It didn't help at all. It actually confused me more that they seemed to get what, the, what Jesus was talking about and I didn't. And so I was having a really difficult time. And in my frustration, when I was conscious that I'm supposed to be sharing a sermon on being poor in spirit and I do not get it. And I went before God and I was like, God, I need you to show me. And then he completely just changed my heart and showed me. He said, James, you're not looking at this counterculturally. In fact, you're actually seeing this, not only seeing this counterculturally, but you're actually reading the passage with a worldly mindset. You see, remember that by living counterculturally, we don't start looking at whatever, what everyone else is doing and then simply do the opposite. We start with what Jesus says. And once we know Jesus' teachings, we, it will quickly become apparent how these differ from society. And so what God was saying to me was, look, you're coming at this completely wrong in your heart you can read and you can read and you can read to try to get them in your mind but there's a heart issue James that you're not getting God was telling me Jesus told us to be poor in spirit and when we live this way we soon see that it clashes with the world because what, what's the alternative of being poor in spirit? Well, what the world would say is emphasise pride and personal independence. And so what I'd been doing is I'd been bringing some of my pride and my personal independence into the reading of this verse. And so my mind was trying to understand it, but I didn't have the right heart. I didn't have the right heart. You see... I didn't want to be spiritually poor. I wanted to be spiritually rich. Because I just couldn't get my head around the fact, why is being spiritually poor a good thing? Because I'm thinking I want to grow and I want to mature and I want to be rich in my spirit. And all of those things God wants for us, but it's the heart by which we are growing and maturing that was the issue for me. You see, who else here will often kind of think 
when you're, you're just kind of coasting along in your faith, you look around and see others and think, doing better than them. Yeah, better, better. And you're like, oh. That is trying to be spiritually rich. It's a lie. Because we are not to compare ourselves to others to determine, okay, I'm doing a pretty good job. We're to look at Jesus. He is the counterculture that sets that and we're to look at him. And so, to be honest, I was really still struggling with this sense of, you're kind of challenging me, God, but I still don't get it. And that's when, in my reading, God completely just opened up the understanding to me when I read about how Billy Graham was once asked a question. And the question that was asked of Billy Graham is, what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the poor, and shouldn't we strive to be rich in spirit? And this is what Billy Graham responded. What did he mean? Simply this. We must be humble in our spirits. If you put the word humble in the place of the word poor, you will understand what he meant. Blessed are the humble in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the humble. We had those times where God just, I don't know how to explain it, but you just, your, your spiritual jaw drops open and God says, there it is, Humility. Humility, not pride and arrogance that the world would offer. No, Jesus came to show us how to be humble. And so God just completely brought the meaning to me of that scripture that I'd been coming with pride and he said, you need to come with humility. Blessed are the humble in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So not only had I not been humble, I'd been arrogant and prideful and I was focusing on my own strength. Now the thing is, when you ever look at a lot of things in the Bible, particularly ones that are countercultural, the diff- difficulty is, is there's this juxtaposition where there's, 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 this is true and this is also true and you kind of, you know, it, well, it's a seesaw. The, the truth is in the middle, but you're kind of, kind of going up and down and trying to work out and... And, and, and this is what God was really revealing to me, is we want to be strong, but if it's personal strength, it's not worth anything. Because you're going to mess up. You can be on the best run of your life, but the next day you can mess up. And all of a sudden, the, the personal strength is rubbish. You know, we all see on you know, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram the life coaches who give incredible statements. Um, there's a guy called Tony Robbins and, and he looks, you know, he looks kind of like a, an Adonis Greek god and he speaks with like, just do this and this. And, and you're like, yeah, it sounds great, but it's rubbish because it's about personal strength. And so whilst we can be tempted to look into what the world offers with, you know, someone who's powerful and articulate, the truth is, is if they don't know God, they offer nothing. They will have truths because, but all truth 
comes from God. And so even the unsaved can draw upon the truths that God has. So it's not that everything that, that guy says and others is nonsense. There's some gold in there. But ultimately without Christ, the general ethos is nonsense because it's not about your own personal strength. And so the challenge I had was I'm kind of thinking, God, I want to mature in my faith. I want to go deeper. And what God said is, you do that by going deeper in me, not deeper in your strength, in your own personal strength. Now, each of us will have our own difficulties. You know, does, do you have a rage and an anger that sparks out and that's your struggle? Do you have a struggle with lust, pornography? I'm going to bring that up because that's always a difficult one. But is pornography something that keeps bringing you back? Bringing you back and you just feel broken and overwhelmed by it. And, there's a, a, you, know, and you, you keep trying but you don't get anywhere. Is the sense of um, you know, having a foul mouth or being uh, you know, really dismissive or rude or angry to a certain group of people? You know, is jealousy your thing? You see, the thing is, is if you're doing it in your own strength, you might be like, oh, I've had a good month. Maybe you even had a good year where you'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm fighting it and I'm doing it, but then you stumble and fall. And what happens when you stumble and fall when you're focusing on a time scale and your own strength is you feel awful. Oh, well, what was the point of that two months of me working hard to not get caught up in this sin. Oh, it's all falling apart. But the countercultural bit is where Jesus says, Look, you've messed up, but it's okay because I forgive you if you're repentant. I forgive you. And so what God started to show me, as I believe he'll be showing you, is we must come to him humbly with no sense of arrogance of, I'm doing really well. Look at what I have achieved. No, you know, I'm going deeper in God and God is my strength and that is how I'm moving forward and I'm maturing and I'm growing. But without God you'll stumble and fall. It's about having your eyes fixed on him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so no one can boast about it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done. Because the good you have done will never be enough if it was just in your own strength. Never. Never. It will never be enough. But salvation is a gift of God that Jesus came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins that we are adopted into God's family because Jesus died. Jesus took all the wrong and sin on his shoulders. It's nothing to do with the fact that 
we've been on a good run. And with the revelation God provided me, this is how I sort of rewrote the passage of blessed are the poor. The only reason I am forgiven and adopted into God's family is because I have received forgiveness and redemption through Jesus' blood that he willingly shed for me. The only reason. The only reason. The only reason I have been forgiven is because I have received the forgiveness and redemption through Jesus' blood. And that's my sermon title today. The only reason. Because as soon as you start to add a second reason and a third reason, you're getting further and further away from God. Then you stumble over and you kind of have to stop and look and you realise, oh, God's saying, yeah, look, I'm here, you're here. You've drifted from me. You've stumbled Come back to me. But God is gracious. Grace is a word like the countercultural things we're looking at is that without Christ, grace is wrong. Grace does not make sense without the Father heart in us. The only reason we are saved is because we've been forgiven and redeemed. Now, I want to sort of close by just sharing with you um, a scripture, and this is in the message version because it really kind of just brought it to life more for me, was James 4, 8 through 10. Now, before we put that up, and you can just take it off for a minute, Sue, if it is, because I know people will start to, to read it, is this scripture is not messing around. It's not messing around. And what I want to say to you, what God said to me is, Don't be a Christian who's just messing around. Jesus showed us the way to be countercultural. And a lot of us, I include myself in this, is it's kind of, well, yes, I'm going with this, and then, oh, but that looks quite good what the world offers. And God's just there saying, no, I want more from you because I've got more to give. I have got so much more than you could ever imagine that I want to bless you with, but you need to pursue me and be countercultural and leave the garbage that the world is offering. When we do that, we become a countercultural Christian. And so, this verse, like I said, it's not messing around. So we can put it up now. James 4, 8 through 10. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit rock bottom. I've been in tears this week as I've been preparing this message where God was just saying, look, in certain areas I need to pull, you need to fall to be at the bottom where he says, look, this is where you will be on your own, rock bottom. Quit playing the field, hit bottom and cry your eyes out. 
the fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Church, I want to challenge you. Do you want to get serious? Do you want to get serious about your walk with Jesus? Because who knows? Yeah, fun and games. It's all fun and games. Yeah, we have fun. And I'm not advocating let's not be a people of fun. Let's have lots of fun. But when we're just pursuing the fun and the games, we are only just surface deep with our roots. God has so much more, this well down here of great resources of water and nourishment. But he he says the only way to get to that depth and that blessing is to go to him and become serious so our roots can go down deep. So just as the, um, just as the, 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 the band come up, I want to just spend the next sort of, you know, short time as I finish my message because I want to put the question to you, do you want to be a countercultural Christian? You don't have to be. You can stick with fun and games, but can I assure you, there's so much more God wants to give you. And if you're not a countercultural, if you're not a countercultural Christian... What's the alternative? Being a lukewarm Christian. I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian. I want to be red hot and on fire. And so as God has been sharing that with me this week, and I should say, I've not collapsed into massive sin. My world's not fallen apart. I'm not about to quit my job as a pastor. It was just that what God does is, he always just prompts us and challenges us. There's always something that God needs to touch and speak to our heart. We may be doing really well, seeking him, going deeper. But there's a thing where he says, but that's not me. And I don't like it. And I want you to get rid of it. And so that's what I want us to do as we worship. Is to, and this isn't between you and me. It's between you and God. So I'm not going to say, come forward, let me pray for you. You need to ask God this yourself. God, what is it in my life that you're highlighting? And if he is, you will know. You won't need to ask him for that. But you need to invite him to say, God, I want to be red hot. I want to be a counter-cultural Christian. Would you show me afresh that the only way, the only way is by coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do it on my own. I want to do it in your strength. So I'm not even going to pray. I'm going to get you to pray as we worship. Stand, sit, however you feel comfortable as God leads you.